intelligence services have whole departments dedicated to just spewing out information deliberately intended to confuse, distract, and getting us to fight each other. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today momentarily in the bunker will be Dr. Lee Kunla. On this episode, we're going to be looking at examples of a phenomenon that is, in our opinion, one of the most important concepts to understand in our current age. That's because today we're looking at examples of disinformation campaigns. Since we've just been researching the history of the KGB and we just released an episode on that, Lee is going to give us four historical examples of Soviet disinformation projects from the Cold War. The first three take place in Germany, and the fourth was more directed against the Americans. In each case, the tactics are the same. 1. Find a division or a weakness in your enemy's society. This can be a fear or a prejudice or something bad from their history. 2. Introduce deliberately false disinformation disguised as good information that takes advantage of those weaknesses. 3. Mix the disinformation in with good information to make it seem more credible. And 4. Sit back and watch the chaos you've caused. Because we're constantly being exposed to disinformation campaigns, it's helpful if we investigate how they've been used in the past and what some of their effects were. And so, without further ado, let's get into it. So, we're talking about the role of the KGB in terms of this new type of warfare of minds, hearts and minds, and trying to convince people of things that are maybe untrue or, you know, that are in some way advantageous for the Soviet Union. Now, the thing about official lies, disinformation, is that it's actually really hard to know the kind of effects that they're having in the target country. You don't exactly know if your disinformation campaign is working, is partially working, or if other factors are really the vector that's making the change happen. I am relying a lot on, in order to to recount this, I'm relying a lot on two separate works. One is by Mitrokin, we talked about that already, and the other one is a book called Active Measures, The History of Disinformation and Political Warfare, by a, an American scholar, professor at John Hopkins University, who also testified at the Sen- uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence when the 2016 hacks were revealed as being probably from Russia or Russian intelligence. And he notes, and a lot of what I'm going to say comes from one of these two sources, but uh, Thomas Reed notes that Disinformation, the raw material are, of disinformation are already existing conflicts and existing divisions in the population that you're targeting. Now, so if you are going to do disinformation against the United States, you might play upon already existing racial tensions that are there, or class tensions, or worries about immigration or climate change or whatever. The point is that disinformation doesn't come out of nowhere. It latches onto, exploits, and heightens already existing issues within that population. And when I turn to Germany, you're going to see how that works uh, really clearly because, of course, a lot of uh, Germany in the 1960s or 50s, a lot of the recent political history of Nazism is going to be a kind of pressure point that the Soviets exploit in order to embarrass or somehow compromise uh, current politicians or current policies. So basically, if I want to launch a disinformation program against a society, the first thing I have to do is figure out what is that society afraid of? Yeah. What causes that society to feel hate? What causes that society to feel fear? And then when I locate those, 
then I can sort of design and engineer my disinformation program so it takes advantage of those fears and those hatreds. Exactly. And often the best disinformation, and I've found some examples of that, mix a whole bunch of truth into the disinformation campaign. So the best lie is one that contains a significant amount of truth. So then even fact checkers go and look at, well, what is this person saying? Does this make any sense? And you come up with, oh, wait, that's true. That's true. That's true. And then there's one thing that you might not be able to fact check. But given that everything else is true, probably this one last piece, which might be the very moment of disinformation, is assumed to also be true. So if I wanted to launch a disinformation campaign to try to prevent people from getting vaccines... I could talk about things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Exactly. Which was like a genuine and real and horrifying experiment carried out on African-American men in the United States by the federal government through their medical establishments in which these men were allowed to die horribly just so doctors could test out the effects of syphilis. Yeah. And that's horrifying. And that's also real. Yeah, exactly. So if if I want to launch a disinformation campaign, maybe I open with that. Exactly. And then people are like, Damn, that's true and, and then, awful. And then add maybe how biological warfare was maybe used in the Korean conflict, you know? And and this is something that the United States has denied, but there's a lot of uh, documentary evidence that is suggestive, let's say that. And, and now you've sort of opened the path to, well, what else is possible? Yeah, because if somebody told me those things, I would then listen to what else they had to say. Exactly. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's kind of hard to know to what extent the disinformation is actually the thing that's causing the event that we're witnessing. But also, disinformation works precisely because it's playing on pre-existing tensions within a society. Now, let me say that what I've done is I've taken three examples of disinformation where I think the consequences are actually somewhat apparent, where... Uh, In the two cases I'm uh, referencing in Germany, there were actually legal changes that happened as a result of the campaign. So although I have a page of just operation after operation, the ones that I've chosen are ones where where you can identify actual policy changes that came about. So I'm going to give you two examples of Germany and one example of disinformation against the United States. So let let me just give a, a brief account of why Germany, and actually it turns out uh, the Czech Secret Service, these are different from the Czechs. This, uh, by Czech, I'm talking about Czechoslovakian Secret Service, are so instrumental in this story. With Germany, so you had after the Second World War, what becomes East Germany is occupied by the Soviet Union. It becomes its own political entity separate from what, what throughout the second half of the 20th century is known as West Germany. So you have East Germany, which is essentially a satellite state of the Soviet Union. Now, their secret police is active within their own territories, and there they have a certain degree of autonomy. But if they're going to do any operations outside of their jurisdiction, outside of East Germany, if they're going to do operations in West Germany, they need to have authorization from the KGB. So The KGB is always in the background, even if the operation itself is being conducted by the East German Secret Service under the auspices, direction, leadership of the KGB. The same thing with Czechoslovakia, where the Secret Service there being the STB is influential also in operations in uh, West Germany and other European places. They don't ever do anything without the KGB giving the okay. So they might have different names, but ultimately, if you went if you went far enough into them, you're going to hit KGB. Oh yeah, KGB is 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 the big brother of these organizations. It is the one that is determining what actual policy is, and sometimes it's convenient to have one of these other spy organizations carry out the dirty work because then there's also the plausible deniability. Should anything ever surface, well, it wasn't us. It wasn't the Soviets who did it. It was those crazy East Germans. Exactly. So I'm going to give you uh, a few examples of successful disinformation campaigns, two of which would happen in West Germany, and they're organized by the East German and Czechoslovakian uh, spy organizations. 
Willy Brandt is chancellor of West Germany. He becomes their chancellor in 1969. He's a social democrat, so moderately on the left of the political spectrum, but nowhere close to the communists. I mean, he is a democrat. Uh, he believes in liberal democracy, but on the social... He's a capitalist. He's a capitalist, but on the social democratic side, so more for a welfare state. Uh, some safeguards. Some safeguards, exactly. And... Uh, this is only a bit of a teaser, so we're not going to get too into it, but he is also championing something called, in German, Ostpolitik, which just translates to Eastern politics, and it is the policy towards East Germany and the Soviet Union, and it's one that basically accepts the new reality. When Germany is divided between democratic West Germany and uh, this kind of socialist dictatorship of East Germany, there's a lot of people on both sides of the border who simply refuse that distinction, who are like, no, no, this is just an occupation. We're not putting up with this. And that only goes so far. Once the Berlin Wall is built, there is a physical demarcation. East Germany has existed as a state since 1949. It's been occupied since 1945, but it's existed as a state since 1949. So by the time Willy Brandt becomes chancellor, it's now 20 years. And at this point, there is an, there is an appetite for, for a new approach in Germany, which is to say, okay, we accept this division. It's, it's, it's what it is, and it's for the purposes of, of global peace as well. East and West Germany are one of the, the the fronts of the Cold War. And and there are in Berlin at Checkpoint Charlie tanks that are facing off at a, uh, towards each other. They're facing each other. And, you know, this is a situation where something can go wrong. You know, somebody sneezes, um, it's misunderstood, <laughs> bullets fly, suddenly there's a massacre and, and World War III begins without anybody intending it. This is the kind of worry that everybody has. And so Willy Brandt is very interested in taking some heat out of this situation. Whereas the whole world is involved in the Cold War, for Germany it's especially pressing because it's happening right on their doorstep. I mean, if there's a country that's going to com be completely annihilated as a result of the like Cold War, instantly. instantly annihilated if the Cold War were to turn hot, it's Germany. Germany's off the map in a, in a couple of seconds. So Yeah, really, I mean, it's weird. It's one thing to think of the Americans and the Soviets with, like, oceans separating exactly. them, kind of shaking their fists at each other. Yeah. But when it's the next block over. Exactly. Literally. Yeah. And so, uh, Willy Brandt is chancellor. He is championing um, a kind of uh, peace with the eastern states. But in 1972, he is faced with a no-confidence vote. Now, uh, we don't want to get into the ins and outs of the German political system, which sure is don't. rather complicated and relies on coalitions because of a, of a voting system that allows for proportional representation. And You're getting often, into it. I'm trying to just give you a brief outline of why it's complicated and why I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but the point is that any ruler... And Angela Merkel today will have to be in a coalition with a smaller um, party in order to maintain power. And so the ideological loyalty isn't always as secure as it is if you just have a one party system, you know, like the Democrats are in charge. A Democrat doesn't just become a Republican uh, on a whim. But in the German system, you have a lot of parties and the, the, they have to cooperate. They have to cooperate, but there's also an opportunity for crossing the floor where that isn't as ideologically compromising as it might be in a different system. We're in 1972. Ultimately, does it become sort of more policy-based than identity-based? Uh, uh, it's complicated. We're not going to get into it. We're not going to get into it. Um, because it's 1972 and Willy Brandt is v facing a vote of no confidence. Now, some people have defected from his party over to the uh, Christian conservatives. They're a, a major force in uh, German democracy. They're more center-right. Willy Brandt is center-left. And some of his coalition members have defected. And it looks as though he's going to lose the no-confidence vote. So if, if the parliament votes no-confidence in Willy Brandt, Brandt ceases to be the German chancellor 
and the CDU would effectively take over. Which means that the German government would go from being kind of center-left to being center-right. That's right. And they would also probably, because the right is generally against communism, even more so than, than the center-left, the Ostpolitik would cease. Now, absolutely surprisingly, because you know the, the, the numbers are pretty clear. I mean, you know who's defected. You know who's sitting on the opposite end of the room. You know their party, party allegiances. Willy Brandt was going to lose this vote by one at least one parliamentary member. But then the vote is taken, and lo and behold, he survives the no-confidence vote by two votes, which means two conservatives either voted for him or abstained from the vote entirely. How is why? Why would they do that? Exactly. Why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. And everybody was absolutely flabbergasted. Of course, Billy Brandt doesn't look a gift horse in the mouth. He takes his victory and runs with it, sure. right? So don't, don't worry too much about how that happened. But it is a head-scratcher. Why would this happen? It took 30 years for this story to come out. But basically two conservative politicians were in the pay of the East German secret police. Who, of course, were controlled by the KGB. Who, of course, were controlled by the KGB. Now, one of them knew that they were working for the Stasi, the MFS. That's the, MFS, the East German... The, exactly, sorry. This MFS is the official term for what is colloquially known as the Stasi, and both of them just refer to the East German version of the KGB, the East German secret police and spy agency combined into one. Um, they do both domestic and foreign operations. Now, one of them was just straight up getting money from them, knew that he was getting money. That, he knew where the money was coming from. Yeah, that was uh, Julius Steiner, and he was a double agent, so straight up. Or he claimed to be a double agent, but actually he was simply working for the, the East Germans. But it gets more complicated with the other guy, Leo Wagner. Now, he's a staunch uh, <laughs> uh, conservative. and of course Anti-communist. Exactly. That was about to say the thing that the conservatives hate more than anything else are communists. Why would this man be working for the communists? Well, he thought that he was working unofficially, under the table, you know, secretly for American business interests. Oh, the Cold War. So he had been recruited by the East German Secret Service under what they called a foreign flag. So they knew that he was not going to work for the communists. So they posed as a secret American business organization looking to further business interests in what is the Soviet region of Germany. And their argument is that the Ostpolitik would actually further American business interests. So a kind of peaceful relationship with East Germany would actually be helpful to American business interests, which maybe would eventually topple communism, who knows? So he thinks that he is helping American business when in fact he's working for a front organization which is just simply the Stasi. So you've got this situation where there's an election and it could either go a bit left or a bit right and obviously the communists in the Soviet Union wanted to go left. That's right. Now I'm I'm a visual That's correct. I'm a visual say. learner if that makes any sense. <laughs> so imagine a situation where you've got your your communist spy and he's got his fur hat and his great big long trench coat on. So he takes off his fur hat and he takes off his great big long trench coat and he puts on a business suit. That's right. And he's like, I am capitalist. Exactly. Do this, the capitalists want it. And then this right-wing politician is like, ooh, I want to do what the capitalists want. Exactly. And so then he's actually doing the work of the communists. Exactly. And this gets you a sense of the complexity of disinformation because it's not just simply, quote-unquote simply, that one group is telling lies to another group. It's often that that group is telling lies to a group that they don't like so that they will work with them. It's just so, it's a mess. It's, yeah. a, it's a mess to the point where you don't actually know who's working for whom anymore. In fact, for all we know, the communist agent who was pretending to be a capitalist was in his heart actually a capitalist. Yeah, yeah who knows, like, Who right? can tell? Who, who knows? can tell at this point? It's a mess. Uh, 
So that's just one example of how disinformation actually had a real-world consequence. I mean, Willy Brandt remains German chancellor. Ostpolitik is driven forward. Germany if, stays a bit left. If that had been different, who knows? Right? I mean, we, we can't really deal in counterfactuals, but what we do know is that the disinformation campaign in this case had a very clear consequence. So that's why I gave it as a kind of a, um, an example of a disinformation campaign that really, you know, has not just vague consequences where, you know, who knows with a Facebook post what kind of uptake it's going to get or to what extent people already had those sentiments. Here we know it was going to go in one direction, it went in another. And this is ultimately the whole point of disinformation, is to change the way people think so that they change the way they behave. It, like the point of disinformation is ultimately to change the actions of groups of people. Now, now I'm going to give you another example. This one actually happens earlier. It again happens in Germany. And I, this is so complicated because on the one hand, I am actually in support of the underlying goals, but I don't support the organization that is trying to achieve those goals. Uh, I'm completely against. So this is like if, if there's a team that you hate that's playing another team that you hate. Yes. You're like, well, I want this team to win because they're playing that team that I hate more, but I still want to hate this team. Exactly. Okay. Which I'm actually, as an English uh, soccer fan, I'm in that situation quite often. Sure. Where it's the two teams I really hate, but I, there's one I hate slightly more. It's nonetheless quite confusing. So, again, what I want to foreground in, in this little vignette is the fact that we are dealing with already existing problems and social tensions. It's not as though um, these things, and I don't want to give that impression in this narrative, that these things are produced by disinformation, but rather that they are heightened and exacerbated by disinformation. You're taking advantage of what's already there and exactly. then amplifying it through the disinformation. Exactly. Now, the other thing that's worth noting is that the goals of disinformation are... You can summarize them in a couple of sentences, but they're also, in a sense, quite vague. So the goal of disinformation would be something like to confuse the uh, opponent's uh, intelligence services, to erode trust in the opponent's uh, security apparatus, to generally weaken support of, say, if you're in the KGB, you have America, which is the big enemy, but then you have all the the, the Western states that are in uh, support of America. Or puppets of America. Or puppets of America, as the case might be. And so if you could embarrass them on the world stage, if you could somehow implicate them in a way, you would then be harming in some way the United States as well. I think at this point, we very quickly have to sort of go back to an idea. Why couldn't these two sides just fight? Why right. couldn't they just, why are they behaving in such a complicated way? Why are they fighting in such subtle and strange ways? Why can't they just fight each other? Right. So, yeah, it, I mean, the bomb has oh, right. made conventional warfare almost impossible. But I would actually add to this that I think we've entered a new era of political sophistication because, of course, as you noted, Nathan, this is part of the Russian political history from the time that you started in the 1880s. So I think it's also, I certainly think that the bomb is a very important piece of why this is so, such cloak and dagger stuff, why you can't just go and have an open fight with your enemy. I think though, as well, is that you have the end of American isolationism, and with that you have the entrance of them into the dark arts of politics and foreign espionage, and now you have these two superpowers. And I wonder if the bomb didn't exist, if this, if some of these things wouldn't still be happening. So, yeah. I mean, they existed to a degree before the bomb, but I feel like the bomb made it one of your few options left. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, to, to just give another quick vignette about disinformation in Germany that is sort of being run by the KGB but is being enacted by the East German Secret Service. So one of the ways you can embarrass or, or cause some trouble for West Germany is to associate West Germany with Nazi atrocities. And of course, 
again, we're not saying that this is not true. As we talked about with regime change, the, a lot of the people who were there during the time of Nazism are still there. And they're still holding positions of power. At least the ones that didn't come over to America in Operation Paperclip. Right. Okay. So, yes. And uh, there were people, you know, who went underground or whatever. But you do hear also people, um, Jews of this time, recounting having uh, personal encounters with former stormtroopers who brag about the amount of Jews that they personally killed. Now, these are the kinds of things that are happening under the surface of political respectability and kind of, you know, media discourses. There's still a lot of Nazis in Germany. They just the took point. off their uniforms. Yeah. Okay. So having, having noted that that is in fact the case, it is also true that a way you can discredit West German politicians or the way that you can damage the image of West Germany abroad is to associate you know, West Germany of the late 1950s, early 60s with the atrocities of Nazi Germany. And so in 19, on Christmas Day, 1959, a student is coming home from mass in Cologne and passes a synagogue that he notices is vandalized by swastikas and anti-Semitic graffiti. And so he goes to the cops and reports this. And then a day later, there's more vandalism. I think gravestones are are knocked over and and uh, lacquer paint has poured on things and and you know there's all this kind of hateful graffiti about uh, anti-Semitic hateful graffiti. Now the for the second incident they actually managed to arrest two people, Arnold Strunk and Paul Schönen, and they in fact are members of a far right youth group, right? So this was not made up; like they are. In fact, kind of, you know, a, a, a new generation of neo-Nazis. They get arrested. But what's weird is that this anti-Semitic vandalism uh, continues. And it starts to happen all over Germany, from Bavaria to Lower Saxony and all over. But then it keeps spreading. And it, 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 it happens in other countries, basically all over the Western world. London, I'm just giving a couple of examples, London, Rome, Vienna, Oslo, Tel Aviv, Montreal, New York, many other places. And this again leads to uh, an actual policy change. So this happened, uh, the beginning of it happened in on Christmas Day of uh, 1959. By 1960, the then German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer calls an emergency uh, meeting and passes new hate crime laws in response to this wave of anti-Semitic vandalism. And of course, I'm in favor of, you know, hate crime laws in a place where you've, you're getting a lot of anti-Semitic uh, graffiti and violence in a place like Germany, which is, you know, what, in 1960 is 15 years out from, you know, the Third Reich and Hitler and all of that. I mean, that's not a long time ago. It turns out, however, that even at the time, people are a bit suspicious. Why is this like, why is this such a coordinated, such a well-oiled operation? And there's a couple of investigations both by West German Secret Service, the BND, and also, is it MI5 or MI6? Are they interior or exterior? Well, it would be one. exterior now, That's right? MI6. So, okay, and MI6 that discover that there was actually in East Germany uh, a meeting of the Central Committee to discuss how anti-Semitism would do a lot of damage to the West German image abroad. And then the two guys who were arrested, oh, it turns out they were going to East Germany a bunch of times. And while in East Germany, they were meeting with Soviet military officials. And it turns out, in fact, that this was an operation run in part by the MFS and then also by the KGB globally to embarrass and discredit Germany worldwide, basically to make contemporary 1960s Germany look like it's the same old Nazis 
who are running the show now, but, you know, as, as Nathan said, having, you know, taken off their uniforms and donned suits and jackets. This is such an interesting example of the subtlety of psychological warfare, because as you say, they are dealing with realities here. The reality is you aren't too far away from the Third Reich. The reality is there are a lot of former Nazis who have positions within West Germany. The, the reality is there are neo-Nazi groups that are already starting to form. However, the events that we saw there with the the, the painting and the the... What's that word when you smash stuff up? Vandalism. And the vandalism, that was... <laughs> we really suck at talking these days. It's, it's been a while. <laughs> the, the, the vandalism, they were inspired not by sort of like a genuine neo-Nazi movement, but they were pushed forward by Soviet intelligence. Yeah. And, and the word that we had to look up before we went uh, on air was entrapment. Entrapment, yes. Right, where... You have people who are liable to do this, yeah. But you, you, you create a situation and egg them on. You in guide a way, them along exactly, so that they do your bidding. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, a former KGB general, in speaking about this operation, said that uh, these were intended to help expose existing racism in Western societies. Man, that's complex, right? This one, I, I really like this, 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 uh, this, this next one. I mean, the last two just give you a sense of that these operations actually can be effective. This one, though, is really cloak and dagger kind of, you know, espionage of the James Bond type that, that I think our listeners tune in for. For anybody who wants to know more about it, this one is called Operation Neptune. I'm, all, I'm in already. This is a great name. Here's the issue. In 1965... The 20-year limit on murder with respect to World War II crimes is reaching a statutory limit. So as of 1965, crimes that were committed by Nazis in the Second World War, well, by anybody in the Second World War, um, can no longer be tried. Because there's a statute of limitations for for murder even in Germany. For murder, even in Germany. Uh, Well, that is, there was Ah. a statute of limitations because in March... This is uh, changed by the German parliament, meaning that, in fact, war criminals could still be charged, arrested, and persecuted for crimes, including murder, committed during World War II. Now, why did this happen? This is roundabout, and I love this story. So, in 1964, there's a kind of a wave of interest in Nazi gold. So, the idea being that with the kind of quick end of the Third Reich, Nazis buried a whole bunch of treasure all over Europe. And then, you know, they were shot or whatever, and this treasure remains. So now, calling all treasure hunters, you know, there's an opportunity to go find, you know, treasure chests of Nazi gold. I would watch that movie. Well, you're... You know, thinking like uh, East European TV producer, because there was a TV show called Curious Camera, which it thinks exactly what Nathan just said. And is like, let's make a documentary about trying to find some Nazi gold. So there had just been something about like finding treasure chests in the lake. So they go to uh, these two lakes. One is called Devil's Lake and Black Lake. They're very close to each other. They're in a region called what used to be called Bohemia on the German-Czech border. And uh, they decide to kind of make a TV documentary about uh, searching for uh, lost Nazi gold. Now, being Czechoslovakian, uh, that is to say they are on the east end of the Iron Curtain there in the Soviet sphere of influence, You don't get to make a documentary, especially a political one, but really you don't get to do anything on TV without state sanction. So they, you know, they call up, they get permission to do this TV documentary, and they get saddled with a guy named Ladislav Bittman, who who himself later defects and writes a tell-all account about this and other operations, which is why we know about this. Bittman just happens so not only is Bittman who works for the Czech not the Cheka the Czech secret police their spy organization as well these are often combined into one thing 
So he works for them in the disinformation department. So these, these, these agencies have special disinformation departments. He works for the disinformation department. And lo and behold, also happens to be a hobby sports diver enthusiast. So um, he is like, you know what we should do? This is a perfect opportunity for a disinformation campaign. So what they want to do is they want to comb the bottom of these lakes and quote-unquote find uh, treasure chests of Nazi documents. Now, and, and the idea is that they're going to find documents that incriminate contemporary West German politicians. Okay, so it could be anything like this guy was, you know, part of the Nazi administration or supported the deportation of Jews or whatever. Um, but they would get like documents that would incriminate West German politicians. So on, on, on May 19th and 20th, uh, a Soviet military truck loaded with four German war chests goes up to Devil's Lake. And at two in the morning, Bittman and another operative go out on a dinghy and dump these. They, they get in their scuba gear and they go down and they dump these chests and they cover them nicely with this silt and soil. So it looks bottom. like they've been there for a long time. Yeah. Looks like they've and been there for decades. Exactly. And they've also like corroded the chests. Well, they've done all this chemical analysis to ensure that the corrosion looks good, but also doesn't damage the documents inside. But now here's the thing. And here's where Soviet intelligence is really quite sophisticated. They know that in order to make this work, most of the documents that they find have got to be authentic Nazi documents. Okay, so that's the plan. They're going to fill up the chest with a whole bunch of authentic Nazi documents and then in there put in a couple of fakes, like strategically place some fakes that are going to incriminate a whole bunch of West German politicians. Again, that tactic of mixing in your disinformation yeah. with actual information. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now they run into a pretty unexpected snag, which is that the documents need to be genuine Nazi documents, but also ones that people don't yet know about. Now, we're 20 years out from the end of the Second World War. There aren't thousands and thousands of Nazi documents that haven't already been made public. The Czechoslovakian secret spy organization, my general catch-all term for the STB, doesn't have a trove of these kinds of documents. Now, they want to be able to present this on the world stage where it's going to be looked over by scholars also in Western societies, like not just people who are going to say what they're supposed to say. So it's got to be authentic. Uh, they don't have these documents. So they, they, they get in touch with you know their comrades in the Soviet Union and, and ask maybe if the Soviets don't have a trove of as yet unreleased authentic Nazi documents. And they're like, well, yes, in fact, we do have that. Stay tuned. But I don't know, I, and they don't know, uh, and the author that I'm basing this on, Thomas Reed, isn't sure whether the Soviets actually have this information and it's just they're really slow in getting it to the Czech operatives or whether they are not, in fact, forging these apparently actual documents. <laughs> So anyway, the long and short of it is that they don't get the documents for two months, two months. And they're like, we, we got we to gotta get going with this TV documentary and the TV right, crew. Right, because they, they have to pretend to find it. Exactly. So they go ahead anyway. They're like, screw it. We'll get the documents later. And what they do is they actually fill up these chests with blank pieces of paper. Okay, blank pieces of paper. They sink the chests. The TV documentary crew is the ones who are then actually supposed to go in and search. And, and, and lo and behold, after a week of scuba divers combing the bottom of Devil's Lake. Well, they, we found these chests. We found these chests. And then they bring them up to the surface. Now it gets really serious. So it turns out in this whole endeavor, they actually find some legit Nazi explosives, so which they have to detonate first. So this adds a whole level of reality to the subterfuge. 
because they got to go to a another clearing and they got to safely detonate these explosives. I mean, that's and, reality show gold, right? Blowing up explosives, blowing up explosives from the Nazis, and then later they find these chests, and oh, now it gets really serious, and they have to cordon off the lake, and they have to like exhume these chests, and they take them away, and and as I said, it takes actually two months for the Soviets to supply the documents. So in the meantime, they just have to pretend that they've found all this amazing stuff and they can't present it yet. And they were like, oh yeah, 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 we, we got to look it over and we got to have scientists. Right, we're pouring over these papers. Yeah. And then they finally get the documents. Again, the STB does not know whether the KGB took so long because they were forging their own set or whether this stuff was legit. And this becomes the basis for at least 20 more disinformation campaigns where this stuff is strategically leaked to whoever whoever it seems appropriate to leak it to. So if Germany is having a trade negotiation with Austria, suddenly a couple of documents get leaked to the Austrian um, ministry that, you know, the guy you're talking to actually was in favor of annexing Austria much earlier and wanted to kill all the Austrians, whatever. And it would happen for the next decade that this stuff was just released piecemeal behind the scenes. So it isn't a big in the newspaper explosion, but it's the sort of behind the scenes diplomatic channels that use these documents to undermine West German political activity. And by extension, and it's not an obvious one, implicating America and the West in kind of Nazi atrocities. Right. And again... The and, and what makes this all so confusing is that, of course, the Americans were implicit in protecting Nazis after the Second World War. Like, that part is true. And that there are, you know, uh, un... Um, what's the word? Unreformed? Unreformed Nazis running, still running the show in, in certain places. Business leaders, teachers, police officers, whatever. So you're taking advantage of that, of those true facts, and then just sort of like, and then you're just you're just tweaking it a bit so that it, it's more suitable to your specific needs. Yeah. Then, okay, so those are my German examples, and I, I realize not everybody is that, you know, tuning in for, for German-specific stuff. But for I think Lee's it's, German hour. Well, yeah, but I think it's, it's really interesting because, for one, the Stasi has an advantage over most of the other spy organizations in that they know their enemy really well, and they're also really close to them. So whereas the KGB and the CIA have, a, have an ocean separating them, the Stasi and West Germany, you know, it's a line on their neighbors, their neighbors. And they were one people 15 years ago. They know what the other person likes. They drink the same alcohol. They eat the same food. They have a lot of the same values. So here you could you had a kind of an access to the other's culture that was not always available for the KGB. But I do have a KGB gem. This one was going to go under the heading of FM3031B. Now, I remember seeing images of this, not as a kid, because I was, I was too young, but in subsequent documentaries, I've seen the embassy in Pakistan, the U.S. embassy in Pakistan, under fire, burning, and then a helicopter needing to come in and rescue the embassy staff. And the whole thing was just this complete catastrophe where you're like, what, what the heck is going on here? So what was going on? Well, that specific incident erupted because the Grand Mosque in Mecca had been seized by religious extremists. So religious extremists go into the Grand Mosque in Mecca and occupy it for almost two weeks. And it takes Saudi special forces to actually get them out. Now, the U.S. actually had nothing to do with this. But Service A, which is the disinformation unit within the KGB, starts to spread the rumor about a week into the incident that actually the religious extremists are a front organization run by the CIA, that actually it's the CIA who's behind this. And why would anybody take something like this seriously? I got interested in that, and here's, here's my take on it. U.S. Army field manuals are abbreviated as FM, 
field manual. And then you have a whole bunch of versions of them, and I don't know what they all refer to, but FM30 was focused on military intelligence. And it's a real publication. So Field Manual 30, you know, it's about uh, intelligence and intelligence gathering in the field. I think this is um, published around the time of the Vietnam War and summarizes a lot of what the Americans are learning from the Vietnam War and how to implement this stuff in future operations. Now, there's a supplement to Field Manual 30 called Supplement A. So it's Field Manual 30A. Now, this supplement is a secret supplement that's added to the manual and discusses more secret operations. Okay. The KGB knows that this field manual exists. And so Service A uh, decides that one of the things they're going to do is create a forgery of this field manual. And the point here is, well, okay, there's, there's two points. So the, the, the first point is just to embarrass the United States, much like you try and embarrass Germany by associating them with Nazi atrocities. You can embarrass the Americans by apparently having uh, internal documents refer to um, other countries, allied countries, in pretty derogatory and, um, you know, kind of reductive language. Hidden away in this field manual was this notion that Americans had a pretty condescending attitude towards their allies. But more importantly, in the forged field manual, and the forgery is Field Manual 3031B, as opposed to Field Manual 3031A. Field Manual 3031B, or FM 3031B, is a forgery by the KGB, but it's a really good forgery. I mean, some of the forgeries that they had done in the past, the English is so bad that even amateurs look at it and they're like, what the, what the it, heck like is this? It's like when you get a spam email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's pretending to be from... Or, or when you get that phone, like, do you ever get that phone call where somebody's, it's a recorded voice saying, this is the Department yeah. of Justice, you yeah. are under arrest. Yeah, Exactly. So it's sometimes the forgeries are really bad, but mm -hmm. this one was really well done. So well done that a lot of unsuspecting readers were unable to tell the difference between one or the other. Now, what's really, what's really quite genius about this forgery is that the central point was that American allies underestimated the threat of a communist insurgency within their own borders. And that what the American military needed to do in order to drive home the threat of Soviet insurgencies through third-party organizations like the Red Brigade or the Red Army Faction or all these kind of, kind of militant youth groups that existed, in order for those countries to take that threat seriously the American military needed to stage radical left-wing terror attacks within those countries. Okay, so let's say, just because I, I've just spoken very generally, let's say America deems that France is not sufficiently worried about the Soviet threat. And they're not sufficiently worried about the Soviet threat within France. What the American military should do is under a false flag, create a violent left-wing terror attacks within France, yeah, to get the French public and the French government uh, sufficiently afraid of the communist insurgency. Does that make sense? Well, I think at this point, we need to kind of like back up for a second. So what you're saying is these Soviet intelligence agencies fake a manual that is supposed to be by the Americans who are arguing that they need to fake a communist attack in countries so that the countries then think that they need to fight back against the Soviets more. Yes. So that's like a, that's a double fake. It's a double fake. And what's so brilliant about it, what's so really sophisticated about this is that once your country buys into this notion that this is what's happening, you can't deny it anymore. All denials strengthen the narrative that's in the fake. 
And the other thing that, what year was this happening in? By 1970, the KGB is interested in forging it. I'm not exactly sure the date of when the forgery emerges. Oh, but that doesn't matter to my purposes. I just need to know this was after Operation Ajax, when the Americans did do this exact thing that now the Soviets are pretending the Americans are going to do. Yeah. Because in Iran, of course, the Americans did go in and try to cause some, like, some some riots that appeared to be by the communists. Yeah. The CIA paid people to pretend they were communists to riot in Iran. Yeah. And so the Soviets are just saying, well, they've done this in the past, yeah. so, th- so people will believe it, because I would believe it, because sure. I would say, well, yeah, because they already did this. Yeah. And, and, but here, well, exactly. And here, what's so great about it is now you've got the, you've got kind of the source evidence from the American military itself as an instruction manual for field operatives being like, this is what you do. You got to go, you got to start a left wing organization, you got to recruit a whole bunch of radicals, and you're going to blow some stuff up so that they take this stuff seriously. Now, this manual starts to conveniently appear in places where the Americans are having a strained diplomatic relationship with another country. So awkward, um, right? Exactly. It's like when you accidentally text the wrong person (laughs) about that person. Like if I texted you and it was like, Oh, that Lee. So pedantic. Right? Exactly. So, so Turkey, for example, is an ally of the United States and they've got an, uh, an internal political issue. They've got um, ethnic violence erupting within Turkey. And suddenly, the national newspaper, is, it sort of gets this mail, this field manual mailed to them. They publish it. And people are like, huh, is this maybe the CIA that's actually behind the ethnic violence? And even if you don't believe it completely, it's enough just to throw doubt. Exactly. It's enough to just make people think, wait, maybe I can't even figure out the truth. Maybe there is no truth. Yeah, exactly. So so in, um, here's a very brutal example. Uh, March 16th, 1978, left militants known as the Red Brigade abduct Italy's Conservative Party leader, a man named Aldo Moro. And this is... I don't, if you don't know about the history of these kind of Red Army brigades in the 70s, they are quite violent to some extent. These are, on the whole, radicalized youth groups indigenous to the countries in which these operations happen. Communists. They're communists or anarchists. or So, so in the United States, it was the weather underground who went on like bombing sprees. In Germany, it was the uh, Red Army faction. The Bader-Meinhof. The Bader-Meinhof complex. In, in in Italy, it's the Red Brigade. Okay. Uh, but in Canada, it was the FLQ. That's right. So you have these kind of militant youth groups who are, who are really quite violent. And, and these guys in uh, Italy abduct um, this conservative politician. They shoot his five bodyguards right on the scene. And the police find 710 bullet casings Jeez. at the, you know, I mean, that's like overkill, right? But immediately, Radio Moscow starts... So these are left-wing militants, right? Right. Radio Moscow starts broadcasting that actually this was probably the work of the CIA. And then soon enough, El Triufno, Tri, Triufno, El Triufno, which is Italy, one of Italy's major publications, receives FM 3031B. And, and they lo and behold, there's it. the instruction manual there on how to do is. this. I have a question at this point. Mm. If you're in one of these organizations and you're yeah. devoted to communism yeah, and you, you carry out these terrible acts, <laughs> how do you feel then when you hear that the Kremlin, who you think is like, who, you're basically doing this for the Kremlin, then you find out that the Kremlin is saying, hey, these CIA plants. You're like, hey, yeah, I, don't I did know. this for you. Why are you calling me a CIA plant? I don't know. Um, it's a good question, but, you know, I mean, probably, certainly from the perspective of the Soviets, these are dispendable, uh, disposable, dispendable. Expendable, disposable. Expendable, there you go. These are expendable elements. Right. You know, they, they are uh, comrades for their cause. I mean, who, who really cares? And maybe from their perspective, they might think, ah, the Kremlin is being wise and blaming us on the CIA. Right, right, right. And again, at this point, I've lost track of what reality even is anymore. Well, and this was sort of my feeling coming out of this, and I think loops us into what we'll have to end up talking about later, which is sort of our new Facebook reality, which is 
I don't know what's real anymore because we have, you know, as you just say, the left-wing radical groups, sort of terror cells fighting on behalf of this larger cause of global communism, which is then being subverted by global communism in order to make their big enemy the United States. In order to promote global communism. In order to promote global communism. I I mean, it just becomes... Nothing is true anymore. Yeah, and everything is possible. Nothing is true and everything is possible. Yeah, and this is all back before we had social media. Yeah. And social media has taken this sort of chaos, has taken this weaponized disinformation and absolutely amplified it up. Yeah, like, but what I find so interesting, and I'm looking forward to doing an episode starting maybe with the 2016 elections, is that... Everything that's in the playbook today about heightening existing racial tensions within a community, about amplifying problems within that community and and creating divisions based on that, which already exist, but again, just amplifying them, is stuff that has been going on since at least the 50s, if not earlier. And so it was it was remarkable to read these operations and the history of them going back to the 60s. And okay, instead of using Facebook and Twitter, it was leaflet campaigns and magazines and newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. But the underlying attempt to disinform uh, another group of people is the underlying strategy. And that has not changed. Yeah. But what has changed is we've gotten better at it and we've learned from our mistakes. So what happens in the modern age when you take those tools, when we are at a state where I think we have really been able to hack into human minds. What happens when you take that same kind of disinformation campaign and then you apply the skills that we have learned since? Well, I think what happens is a lot of what's going on now. Um, that's, the, that's, that's the result of it. But what I find so shocking in this story is that this element was never part of the narrative for me. I mean, I just assumed that foreign intelligence operations, if they had any effect, were always quite marginal. Unless, you know, somebody like something like with smuggling the secrets on how to create a bomb, that does have very vast ramifications. And yet it still seems like a peripheral event. It doesn't come into your home. Yeah. This stuff comes into your home because it changes how you see the world. It changes what you think and what you do. And the fact that other that foreign intelligence services have whole departments dedicated to just spewing out information deliberately intended to confuse, distract, and getting us to fight each other, like mm-hmm. turning, turning each other on ourselves, that there's a whole army of people that it, whose job it is to do that is, is quite shocking. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I was trying to imagine having, trying to have a relationship with a partner, and all your friends, all of them, are lying to each one of you about what the other person is doing. I mean, how can that relationship ever work? Of course, you have issues. Every relationship has issues, right? So, of course, there's going to be this or that tension. And who knows what it is in any particular relationship. But now, if all your friends, or even half of them are just playing on those particular tensions that you guys have in your relationship and ex- ex- exploiting those and exacerbating those for no particularly clear end goal, just yeah. to screw with you. How do you survive that? How does a relationship survive that? How does a political community survive that? Yeah. And how do our concepts of reality survive the constant stream of whispers in our ear from the disinformation experts? Yeah. Because they are experts. And again, it's really hard to differentiate what is disinformation. Because it's playing on real tensions. Well, all of the examples that we've looked at, we've also said, of course, the Americans really did do these things. Or the Nazis really were active in these things. Are we... I have a question to to end end this episode. Are we in a lot of trouble? I think we're in more trouble than I thought. That's for sure. Again, because I thought most of the trouble was us getting to grips with the technology. It was just us and the technology. 
And now it turns out it's us, the technology, and a malicious force behind the technology. Right. You were concerned about the dangers of misinformation. Yes, and exactly. And now you're terrified about the dangers of disinformation. Yeah, 